Public health is in the spotlight during the coronavirus pandemic, especially the field of epidemiology, which is the study of the origin of disease, the pattern of infection, and understanding the factors to associate with the disease. There's a lot of public health data and epidemiological models presented in the media. What can you recommend to the public when they're looking at the data and the model? My recommendation for the public is when they're looking at mortality rates, really to take them with a, 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 a caution because uh, uh, some uh, other factors that need to be taken into account. For example, the age of the person, whether the person uh, you know, in each uh, group had other uh, disease, for example, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, hypertension, you name it. So just the mortality, it's not really, doesn't really give you um, any information about how good the care was in a particular country rather than another. You are listening to the voice of Dr. Giovanni Ferlardo, who is a public health expert and an epidemiologist who has created statistical models to understand the spread of COVID-19, the coronavirus. He has over 15 years of work experience in epidemiology, health services research, and comparative effectiveness. He has received over $35 million from different funding agencies, including the National Institution of Health, NIH, and he has published over 160 manuscripts and presented at more than 30 conferences. He is currently a clinical professor of health services research at Baylor University and a research associate professor of statistics at Southern Methodist University in Texas. In this episode, Dr. Ferlardo will go over our frequently asked question, which many of my listeners have submitted to me on my website, and he will share with us his latest statistical models, and his recommendation to use data and evidence and not your gut feeling to make informed decisions. If you have topics or questions in public health for me, please feel free to send a voice message or an email using the contact information in the show notes. I'll try to get those answered in our podcast. So listen on. Hello, friends. This is the What is Public Health podcast with your host, Dr. Ki Chan. What is public health? To me, public health is the invisible force that keeps you healthy every day, and I bet you didn't even know it. Hello, friends out there. I'm very excited that I have a special guest here, Dr. Giovanni Ferlardo, who has been a good friend, a colleague for many years. Dr. Ferlardo is an expert in epidemiology and also helping to address the COVID-19. Here, he's going to go over some of the frequently asked questions FAQs of COVID-19, the coronavirus. Dr. Ferlato, how are you doing right now? Uh, well, thank you so much for having me first. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm okay, uh, given the situation. Uh, for the past uh, three weeks, we were very um, religious about following the self-distance um, um, recommendation from um, the CDC um, to try to flatten the curve so that we can uh, hopefully uh, reduce the amount of uh, infection in the country. The way we reconnected was I saw your recent interview by the Washington Post, just a video now posted on YouTube. I thought, wow, this would be great for you to be on my podcast to help answer some more frequently asked questions. Before we go on with this podcast interview, I'd like for us to share with our audience, like, how do we meet? Well, it's a long story. We met 20 years ago. I graduated from uh, Emory University with a master in public health in 1998. Um, as you can tell from accent, uh, I'm not from uh, from the U.S. Uh, I'm Italian. Um, and uh, in '98, I decided to go back to Italy and, uh, uh, with a master. My goal was to teach in Italy, 
but I soon very quickly realized that I needed my PhD uh, to do a research at the highest level in teaching. So I applied to several schools and they got into Yale. And then in 2000, um, I started the program there and I graduated in 2004. That's when I met you <laughs> in 2000, where we started the program together. So uh, it's been 20 years now and uh, it looked like to me that it was just yesterday. Um, we were uh, lucky to to really be in a, a environment which was a world class environment, and we got a lot of exposures to, you know, the highest, you know, the the, the best expert in the world in the field, and uh, and uh, I feel that uh, what we learned then really helped uh, us in a, in our career and uh, helping other people in public health. Yeah, and those days at Yale really brings back very fond memories, and it's funny how time just flies by. It's almost like a blink of an eye that it just seemed like it was just yesterday when we were at 60 College Street um, at the computer lab or at the PhD lounge just talking about courses or going out afterwards to Gypsy. I still remember that's one of the hangouts at Yale campus where a lot of the graduate students go to. So it has been so long, but also I'm so glad that we connected back then and also connected through the years and just to see the great work you're doing right now in Texas and that even though I've moved around, uh, we've always maintained contact. So I'm very delighted that you are here with us, Dr. Ferlardo, to share your insight about the COVID-19. I was wondering if you could speak more about what has happened recently. Now, based on the President Trump's most recent briefing, where he showed the model that even with mitigation, we could expect between 100,000 to 200,000 deaths. What factors are taking into account for that model? Because I think when people show those numbers, it can be very scary. But I also think that um, what wasn't brought to our attention was that what's the purpose of a model? The model isn't a crystal ball. So I was wondering, since you do work in research and you do do some modeling, can you tell us more about what a model is and what variables can impact that number of deaths? And when will those deaths occur? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Sorry for interjecting. Um, a uh, statistical model, that's basically what we're talking about, really depends on uh, the um, variables or the factors that we take into account to predict some uh, outcomes. In, uh, in this case, uh, it's either the number of people that are infected or the number of people that, unfortunately, they will uh, pass away. Um, what they did here in this particular case, they used data that was available through the experience that uh, the Italian, the Spanish, the Chinese, and the German, and the French are having right now in terms of uh, coronavirus infection and um, outcomes. And the idea is to try to get um, basically from their um, variables, from their um, experience, like how many people die, how many people um, ended up going to ICU, how many people ended up to go to uh, the hospital yards, how many people they were treated at home, how many people uh, they eventually from uh, from being the ICU die, what is that percentage? So using all this information, um, it's possible to um, determine in a statistical in statistical terms um, how many people will eventually die in a different population. That's what has been done now in the U.S. 
Um, the issue about uh, the more predicted mortality or the, the mortality that, that the President Trump was talking about right now, that he looked like it will be lower than uh, initially predicted, um, is that uh, we really do not know if we are really uh, at the beginning of the uh, epidemic here in the U.S., so the, the peak will go up and then will go down again, or we are uh, already into the final phase of the infection uh, because uh, it, could, it, is, it is conceivable that the virus has been here in the U.S. probably since the beginning of January. Therefore, um, we already have been, uh, you know, unfortunately, several people have already been infected. Uh, most of the deaths were not accounted for because we didn't really, at that point, we didn't know that there was a virus issue in the U.S., therefore we haven't really tested anybody. I want to just give you a reminder that until, um, I believe, March 15 or something like that, the, the number of tests done in the U.S. was uh, um, just an handful of thousand. Uh, therefore, we have no idea about how many people were infected, I mean, what was the real risk, and we clearly know if someone that died with pneumonia had also coronavirus or someone, someone that died because, of, uh, you know, had complications. Uh, accordingly, um, I think that perhaps, uh, and awfully, we are already on, a, on, a, on the descendant uh, phase of the disease, even if some, uh, there are some hotspots like New York. Uh, but the, the good news is that, for example, in the West Coast, we are really seeing that the number of dead be decreasing very, very, very significantly, as well as the number of uh, uh, the infected people. So uh, that's some, some good news. Um, it, that's what we have right now. Just to follow up on that geographic differences, you mentioned that we do see differences between the West and East Coast. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, as we know, uh, the infection started, unfortunately, in China um, sometime. We do not know exactly when, but we believe it started sometime uh, at the end of November or mid-November. Um, so considerably, uh, given the, the, the large amount of people traveling between Asia and the, and the West Coast, it is possible that the virus uh, got uh, into the West Coast early uh, in, uh, in 2020, uh, which means that uh, uh, several people have already been infected. Uh, as we know, uh, approximately 80% of the people infected are asymptomatic, which means that they had the virus and they resolved the situation basically with no symptoms and they, they are completely normal, so they got immunity. And only 20% of the people will have some uh, um, complication, so they will go to the next phase of the disease. Um, so it's possible that on the West Coast, uh, they, they already, you know, the first wave is almost finishing. While on the, on the East Coast, it will be different because the majority of the people traveling to the East Coast come from Europe. So um, it looks like that the wave of the infection uh, get, got into the, the West Coast, or the East Coast, my apologies, um, and with some uh, one month or, or uh, 45 days of delay. That's why we are experiencing or we are observing right now this hotspot in Philadelphia, New York, um, Chicago, uh, Detroit, and also in Louisiana. So you're saying that it's the timing of when the virus was introduced to the U.S. There's been some speculation that there may be different 
uh, mutation of the virus and that that might be influencing the duration and the severity of the disease. Do you think that is so in the U.S.? It just could be totally possible. I think that we are already a mutation number eight or nine. Uh, as you know, uh, um, humans, they haven't been exposed to this virus. So uh, they have zero immunity. So 100% of the people will get infected. And uh, as you know, um, uh, virus, they, uh, they mutate because they don't want the host to uh, die because their goal is to survive as well. So it could be that the initial uh, strength of the virus was uh, more violent and, uh, and more aggressive. And it could be that little by little, the virus is adjusting to survive so that they can, um, you know, it can still survive in, a, in, a, in our community. So I think that we are around mutation number eight or nine. And uh, there were some um, uh, virological studies showing that the virus uh, right now currently um, spreading in, uh, in the West Coast is different than the one in, uh, in the East Coast. Uh, the one from the East Coast, it looks like there's a mutation coming from, uh, from Europe. And the one in the West Coast is a mutation coming from China and uh, Asia. Oh, those are very interesting observations about the different characteristic of the virus in the different geographic areas. So thank you for sharing that. Another topic of interest that has been circling around in the news is testing. So what happened with the COVID-19 in terms of testing or the lack of testing, like especially here in the U.S.? Well, uh, it showed uh, the limits that we have in terms of uh, public health prevention. Um, the CDC was supposed to be having, um, you know, the total control of, uh, uh, of uh, you know, testing in, a, in, the, in case of pandemic or, or, or um, uh, you know, epidemic. And uh, it looked like that when they received the WHO uh, information on the virus and, they, and, and the protocol on how to develop the, the testing, uh, that was done um, uh, not uh, correctly, and they decided to do their own testing, and then uh, it, it appeared that they, you know, they, they were not um, uh, able to really test uh, the, the right amount of people. In other words, uh, if you have a virus uh, which uh, has never been um, spread in humans, the goal of the testing should be basically almost uh, either 100% of the population or a random sample of the population. Let me say what is a random sample. is a, a, a subgroup of people in the population who is representative of the whole population. Here, we did not do that. So uh, what happened, they start they scramble, you know, some, um, some possible testing. Initially, they were testing, you know, a couple of hundred, hundred people, not thousands of hundred, hundred people a day, and only uh, since uh, the mid-March, they started to uh, be able to test uh, 50, 100,000 people a day, uh, which is what we're supposed to be doing. My understanding is that um, um, the Trump administration was able to um, uh, engage uh, the private laboratories to do that. But for example, in Italy, which is uh, uh, um, a country with universal health care, uh, although they, they were hit very hard by by the coronavirus, uh, because they have a more centralized system, uh, they were very they were able to to test very very quickly and a lot of people. So here probably the question that we want to ask ourselves: Why we were not prepared to um, the eventuality of a pandemic in terms of testing? Why the CDC was not ready? Uh, why the HHS was not ready? 
why the NIH was not ready. And uh, uh, that goes beyond, uh, uh, in my opinion, uh, whoever is uh, uh, sitting at the White House, but is uh, show a lack of uh, um, um, uh, overall system which goes beyond the political, uh, um, you know, issue that we can have. So uh, I really hope that we can use uh, um, what is happening now as um, a, a lesson learned. And I'm pretty sure, by the way, then, uh, uh, that with the work done now in terms of uh, having maybe, you know, testing with more granular, et cetera, et cetera, that's hopefully and when we will have the next uh, epidemic open day, uh, we will be ready. So, yes, that's a very important point that you shared that the public health system is very fragmented and that might have influenced the different steps that took place and didn't take place in the U.S. And also most, you know, in the last few years, funding for emergency preparedness and response has decreased over the years. So it's not only that the way how the public health system and the healthcare system is very different compared to Europe, where it's like there's a universal healthcare system and that the public health system is integrated to the healthcare service delivery, like in Europe, but here in the U.S., it's, you know, very, it's very silo. And so we need a much more systems approach. That's what it seems like you're saying to have the different agencies to work collaboratively and in a coordinated way, especially in a time when there is a pandemic or any type of emergency response that is needed. Regardless that, you know, the, the public health system is a little bit more fragmented and we should be more coordinated, there was a delay at the start. And one of the reasons, from my understanding, is that the CDC chose not to use the tests from the WHO. Why did they choose to make their own during this time when it seemed that time was running out? Do you know what your what are your speculations on that? Uh, really, I do not know. I mean, uh, this type of testing is very simple. Uh, you know, basically, they're looking for the RNA, the DNA, or the virus, which is a very simple. You know, I uh, very quickly glide through the protocols and by the WHO. Um, I do not work, you know, in terms of uh, <laughs> developing testing, but uh, uh, colleagues on my explained to me that it's a very simple test. Um, the CDC has been uh, um, uh, claiming for years that uh, um, they are the gold standard when it comes for, for testing. So they decide to go in a completely different direction and do things by on their own. It actually, uh, you know, unfortunately resulted in, in a delay because of the, when they developed their own testing, unfortunately the testing was faulty. Uh, on top of that, as I said. It, it was no use properly. If you want to know what's going on in your, in your country, you need to test a random sample of the population. That's called the, that's the first step is surveillance, especially because at that time, when um, in January or February, um, you know, the CDC was already working on that. The idea was that the virus was not here yet, or if it was here, it was here only in, a, in minor terms. So if they would have done that properly, it would have actually got a random sample or a, a, a subsample as well of people symptomatic, we would have been able to, at that point, not only to uh, mitigate, but also to contain, uh, do you know, what we were supposed to be doing, which is uh, uh, contact tracing and, uh, and uh, implement other measures, like, for example, they did in Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong, where they were able to control the virus. 
Yeah, I think there's so many lessons to be learned from this whole experience and how we could reevaluate our public health system and how the healthcare system could be more integrated and how the different national and local state agencies could be more collaborative and coordinated in these type of efforts. And just to follow up on your um, your comment on how other countries are containing, what have countries done to contain and mitigate the COVID-19? Yes, we need to make a, a distinction for, for for containment means that uh, uh, the virus uh, just started and we, uh, whoever, you know, which, whoever country, they, they got lucky enough that they had only a few cases. So when it, when, it, when, it, when it happened, what you do, you immediately uh, trace back um, who are the people that these uh, uh, people that uh, were infected had any contact with. You start to work basically uh, uh, paddle back until you get to the point that uh, you're isolating and self-quarantining all the people that were somehow in contact with these people. Uh, unfortunately, the way that the infection spread it, uh, even places like Singapore, uh, which have a very good public health uh, infrastructure, Hong Kong and Taiwan, the container was not really possible. So what they did, they do, uh, they start to sell, you know, um, uh, uh, social distancing immediately. They did something which is spectacular about um, also uh, providing a, a uh, questionnaires to their population, uh, basically um, asking them to check the temperature three, three times a day, uh, checking their symptoms. And, uh, and basically, by having this particular log, each person was uh, become accountable for really uh, reporting whether or not they were uh, symptomatic or not. It provided information back to the to the public health officials, which were able to immediately um, tackle if there was an issue. Um, on top of that, they were able to um, uh, follow uh, um, uh, GPS traces of people that um, resulted positive. So they, they were able to go back to the community that's um, where they were coming from or where they were, so they can self-quarantine them in the people that somehow uh, were in contact with them. Um, so basically, there are, there are all draconian measures, if you think about that, uh, apply these draconian measure uh, uh, with a little bit of spin-off of innovation, like using the GPS tracing, like, like using questionnaire, that you can use to run up. Also, they were sending text messages to the to their population to just give them a reminder about self-distancing or about you know, do you feel feverish, do you have any symptoms, or really basic stuff that uh, in the U.S. they have not done. Uh, here, the only thing that we are doing is just self-distancing, which is very very minor. That's why I do not believe that uh, you know the slowdown of uh, the cases and mortality that we are currently seeing is due because of uh, uh, the social distancing measure. I do believe that it's going to be at the end of the uh, infection just because uh, it's getting to the end of the infection. Of course, self-distancing is something that is absolutely important to do, but it needs to be integrated with other measures. I do believe that, for example, getting a text message a day for each of us, because almost every person has a, has a cell phone right now, giving a reminder, hey, don't forget to be to stay six feet away from someone. Don't forget, you know, when uh, when you go to the grocery store to, uh, you know, uh, wipe out, you know, with a hard call or whatever, you know, any any packaging uh, that you got that was plastic. So there's very basic things that we could have done that are easier that don't really change anything on our life that we I believe that unfortunately we didn't do it yet. 
So um, possibly uh, uh, one of the reasons why um, still the infection is high right now, and again, we, we have no idea what the real infection rate is because we haven't done any antigens or antibody testing yet, which means that we don't know really develop an immunity right now with the current testing. What we do, we simply check people uh, that uh, whether or not they have the virus right now, which doesn't mean that, uh, you know, if I test someone now that is negative, this person didn't have the, the disease, you know, earlier on. So uh, we are really not on top of our game right now. I think that we could do way more and we should do way more. Yeah, it sounds like we can do so much more and we can learn from other countries who are succeeding in addressing the COVID-19. So why aren't we doing those things like the survey, the GPS tracking, and other types of using technology to aid us in addressing the COVID-19? I mean, here in the U.S., you know, we're a highly technologically driven society. You know, couldn't we all share information where people are willingly sharing information on Facebook. Could we be willing to share our GPS location, our symptoms, our fevers, or our temperatures online? Like, is, is there, what is your speculation that why we've been slow at this or we haven't done any of this? Well, first of all, I mean, they, we do not have a database of the people that have the coronavirus <laughs> in the U.S. So think about, you know, they are struggling now to assess whether or not, uh, uh, you know, a person was uh, um, an Asian or African-American or, or Caucasian. Uh, it, it's really something that, that uh, it's, I don't understand because I'm an epidemiologist, you know, there is an epidemic. The first thing I do, I, any single person that comes in, they get tested, I, I get all the information I can in terms of uh, their um, demographics, uh, their um, current um, health status, and then I want to know if they test positive or negative, and then I want to know how, what type of medication they got when they um, got infected, and, you know, followed them until hopefully they resolve the issue. And here, uh, uh, we have a problem, I think, because uh, um, in the U.S., we have, um, you know, states that technically are technically independent from the federal government. So the federal government cannot tell the states what to do. The states technically, if the federal government can only tell you to do certain things and no other things. So I think that's probably because we are really kind of working on silos. And again, like you were saying, we are not organized as a team. It doesn't work. That's what I'm saying. The leadership of the CDC and the HHS is missing. In other countries, the equivalent of the CDC and the HHS exactly what to do to the population. Like you said, it would be so easy to right now spend, get you know, a couple of engineers from a, a big um, companies to put together a um, database or uh, that can run on platforms like apps or websites, et cetera, et cetera, to have a sense of what people, uh, fever uh, uh, situation is all over the country. So I know where they need to go to do the testing. Checking, you know, if uh, they have cost, same situation. Right now, nobody knows anything about it. You're just waiting for someone to just show up at the ER, which, by the way, is going to actually increase the risk of infection for other people. And then you may or you might or you might don't test the person, depending on whether or not the person had symptoms or they travel abroad, et cetera, et cetera. So again, uh, I really believe that we did not do uh, what um, 
this country can really do. Uh, we have so many wonderful researchers and so many wonderful public health officials, uh, but we, what we have been implementing in this country is completely substandard. Working, working and teaching in public health, just like just as you, Dr. Filardo, that what we see here is a, could be a classic case study to teach our students of what to do, what not to do, examples of management, mismanagement, leadership, what other solutions that we could implement in the future. So I think seeing what we have here, I think I'm hoping that this would be a good opportunity for reflection. I mean, I think there's a lot of personal reflection going on right now for many people since they're staying at home, but maybe a national reflection about our public health system and that how it has been underfunded and understaffed for several years. And that, you know, something like this happens, you know, those funds are going to impact the capacity and the capacity of addressing this relates to the personnel that are hired, you know, how much resources you're provided to that state since everything is run at a state level. And if they have many different public health issues that they're working on, are they going to put that all aside and address the COVID-19, especially if there's already limited numbers of staff members? So I'm really hoping that this COVID-19 and this pandemic is a wake-up call to all of us, how we need to invest in the public health system. Because we can see how other countries, when they have a public health system and healthcare system that's very well integrated, their react time was much faster. And you can see the outcome, you know, in these countries. And so just to follow up on other countries, like what are some differences in characteristics of COVID-19 positive among other countries? And maybe you could elaborate on maybe that might have influenced the outcome that we see now. Sure. It really depends on, on, uh, on the testing. As I said, your country like Germany, that instead of uh, um, testing only people that are symptomatic, they, they decide to test people in terms of a random sample of the population. So if you look to the demographic and terms of age and the gender of the people that they're being tested and they were found to be a positive in Germany, it's very different than in Italy, for example. In Germany, you have um, the median age, I believe, was 48 years old. In Italy, the median age for people positive for a coronavirus was a 66, I believe, or 71, something like that. So that tells you really how testing is going to really, really make a big difference. Because what Germany did say, you know, let's test as many people as we can. Let's get a very good sense of who actually is very... Uh, who is positive in the country. In Italy, what they did, they were testing the people that were more sick. Um, in the U.S., it's pretty similar to what is happening in Italy. Um, so uh, really, uh, they, like I said, uh, really the probability of getting infected uh, clearly depends on lot, lot of different variables. One is really, do you live in an area, uh, for example, where there is high concentration of people living in the same uh, place, for example, uh, that apartment building, you know, high rise, etc., etc., but you're catching an elevator, right? If you're in an elevator, if the person, you know, that was in the elevator prior to you was in there, more likely you had droplets of and, uh, and, and maybe hair flow, um, uh, um, droplets still in the elevator, you get infected. But also depends on, a, on other factors, depends on a, uh, on the fact that uh, uh, you have the opportunity to uh, maybe uh, uh, be less close to other individuals. For example, you're not traveling too much, you're not taking the subway, you're not taking the metro, you're not taking transportation, you're, you're driving. So that might explain a little bit the, the lower 
uh, rates in a, in a, in a the states, uh, you know, in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Midwest, I believe, or in the central uh, of the U.S. So um, the reality is, though, is that uh, all of us, uh, we are susceptible to get infected because the virus is uh, new to us. So, like I said, there are external factors that they put the individual to uh, be at higher risk to be uh, infected or not. And then... The, uh, the additional fact is, who are we testing? So we are only going to discover, uh, you know, a particular subgroup of the population or not, depending if we target the particular group or not. So you have example like Germany, like I said, and there is a situation that could be the random sample, and Italy, they tested people that are a little bit more sick, uh, and the other country, they did in a different way. And that, unfortunately, is all related to the fact that uh, there is only a, a, a number of uh, uh, testing available, uh, given that, you know, you cannot test a million people a day. Uh, so that's, that's where we are. And the, the major issue, though, is when we, uh, we do, you know, uh, this testing, which is not really done or random, but done on a particular subgroup of people, outcomes can be completely, completely uh, biased in terms of uh, um, um, mortality rate or the number of people that die that are also positive. So if you're comparing the mortality rate of Germany and Italy, you will say, whoa, Germany, the healthcare system is great because nobody's dying here. Yeah, too bad that, uh, you know, like we said, uh, 50% of the uh, people in the Italian group, they are uh, 70 years old or older, which are already more likely to die just because they're older <laughs> than people in Germany and the German group that are, 50% of the people that are 46, 48 and younger. So uh, that's when I, my recommendation for the public is when they're looking at mortality rates, really to take them with a, uh, a caution because uh, uh, some uh, other factors that need to be taken into account. For example, the age of the person, whether the person uh, you know, in each uh, group had other uh, disease, for example, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, hypertension, you name it. So just the mortality, it's not really, doesn't really give you um, any information it, about how good the care was in a particular country rather than another. Thank you for reminding us that there are other factors that we need to consider when we're looking at these numbers, like the mortality rates that's shown on the news, because it can look very scary that maybe some countries are doing better than the other. And then you start questioning like your own country to see well, maybe they're not doing enough. But I think in the U.S. they're doing the best they can right now, given the resources and the data they have at hand. You mentioned that there are risk factors that associate with mortality. It was projected that it was going to be mostly impacted on the elderly, and as you said, that you know they probably have underlying conditions. But more and more, we're starting to hear stories of younger people, like people in their 30s or 40s, um, that's been infected and in some cases died. So, do you notice any common factors in those individuals? Yeah, unfortunately, we do not have access to the data. It would be wonderful to have the, you know a complete um, uh, you know a database uh, with all the information about the uh, comorbidities and the other diseases that each person had so that you can do some uh, um, run some uh, statistical model that we call adjust, which means that there will be accounting for the severity of the patient 
to assess whether or not a particular risk factor that I'm putting uh, younger people at higher risk or not. Um, so I cannot really address the question. Uh, one thing I can tell you, though, that I, uh, um, you know, it's a usual question. You know, if someone ever smoked a cigarette in their life, they had a wonderful, very, very, you know, they work, they've been working out every day, not only 45 years old, they get lung cancer. And then you have a person which uh, who is, you know, uh, 80 years old, smoking a two pack a day since they were 18 and never had anything, you no know, lung cancer. The reality that we always think about uh, disease and outcome um, on, a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a single person, the reality we need to think about is probability in the population. So the probability that uh, someone young will die for coronavirus exists. It's not zero. <laughs> so um, uh, it's just, um, just for, the, for, the, for the probability reason uh, someone will die um, even if there are no underlying conditions. But what we can say, we can say that the probability for a, um, a 45 years old or 35 years old, or for a woman, because women are less likely to uh, to die for coronavirus, uh, that are, you know, in the population on average lower than the other groups. Because yeah, we're starting to see that too. That based on what we have in terms of the data, that's showing that it seems that it's impacting men a lot more than women. But we're also seeing that most recently that it's impacting the African-American groups more. What do you think about those statistics or those data? Sure. Uh, it's, it's very complicated because uh, um, what is happening here, uh, um, it's showing uh, what we were saying earlier about uh, disparities in uh, having access to, to care or having access to uh, public health. Um, a, a, the vulnerable population that usually the one paying higher price. In this case, when the uh, virus uh, uh, first uh, made its uh, appearance in the U.S., uh, there were some rumors about um, um, the fact that this virus was not really uh, infecting um, the African-American population. Uh, these rumors uh, were very quick uh, to um, spread uh, uh, in the community. And, uh, and uh, therefore, more likely, uh, it happened that, uh, you know, the social distancing measure that, that they were uh, recommended, etc., they probably were not taken too seriously because, they, well, it doesn't do anything to me. If that explains probably why uh, there is a uh, you know, significantly higher number of people uh, in the African-American community that have been affected. In terms of outcome, absolutely related to the fact that, uh, unfortunately, the African-American community has more... Uh, um, uh, um, you know, in general, more health issues because they have li- li- less, you know, less access to healthcare. Um, they have more comorbidities. Uh, and they have more diabetes. They have more um, uh, uh, obesity issues, hypertension. So you name it. it, it that's really fun. But again, as I said, it would be very difficult to really uh, say something intelligent without having all the data available because. Uh, um, when uh, uh, you account for all other factors, you might find that a person, uh, let's say a white person, with the exactly the same uh, health health profile of a African American gentleman, uh, will have exactly the same probability to die. So uh, right now, until we have really data that allow us to do rapid analysis, I believe that the CMS is doing that um, right now. Um, uh, President Trump two days ago and uh, Dr. Fauci said that they were looking into that using uh, data from uh, um, the Center for Medicare uh, Service. Uh, so 
Uh, right now, uh, we do not have the information. However, we can comment on uh, the highest rate of infection. The highest rate of infection is that, unfortunately, there was a uh, rumor to spread. It was spread, spread very, very quickly, and uh, which uh, unfortunately led to this higher infection rate. Interesting point that you just shared. There could be many different factors that plays in the role in how someone is infected and can die from the COVID-19. I was wondering if we can also talk about how other countries are testing for COVID-19. And are all countries testing for COVID-19 using the WHO guidelines? Technically, they should, but they are not. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Uh, the reason is because uh, um, uh, the lack of testing, um, uh, the lack of resources, uh, the lack of inf- infrastructure, unfortunately lead a country to uh, kind of scramble something together in order to, to do what it's supposed to be doing. Uh, and tell me the uh, not following the HR guidelines, uh, I mean uh, testing the people that they need to be tested. In other words, if you follow the WHO, WHO guidelines, you know, people that have, um, you know, symptoms, they should be tested. But in the U.S., for example, uh, we were, they were adding also, uh, you know, and also you have travel in countries where the coronavirus is present. So let's say that I was coughing very badly and I have fever. I go to the, um, you know, I call my doctor and my doctor, I cannot test you because we haven't been to China. So uh, clearly the U.S. could not follow the WHO guidelines at that time. Um, so really, uh, um, it, the same for assessing um, mortality. Uh, in Germany, for example, uh, unless the person clearly dies for, uh, for coronavirus, which, by the way, a uh, person dies for coronavirus, die for cardiac arrest. <laughs> so the, the, the main cause of mortality would be cardiac arrest, right? But in reality, you know, the lung will not function, et cetera, et cetera. It, it appears in Germany, uh, unless the person had no other um, uh, um, comorbidities, the person was not recorded as coronavirus. Instead, the WHO guidelines, they, they mentioned that if coronavirus was one of the uh, main um, conditions that the person died, then that person, their mortality would be a coronavirus mortality, unless uh, the person had uh, a other disease uh, who was uh, uh, limiting the, the survival for this particular person um, to, I believe, two or three months. In other words, if you have a, you a, a, a late stage of a cancer or your cancer and you were just about to die, the fact that you got coronavirus doesn't really kill you, right? You die because you have cancer and you're, you're very close to die anyway. So unfortunately, like for the vaccine, uh, for the, sorry, for the testing that we mentioned earlier on, where the U.S. decided, the CDC decided to, test, to develop their own test without following the WHO guidelines, it also drives a very, um, let's say, um, subjective uh, way of uh, um, using testing, um, and, you know, uh, WHO guidelines in, in, in various countries. It does explain why data are all over. There is not really a homogeneous way to, to use the data. That's why it's so difficult to run um, statistical models that are very um, uh, precise uh, because data is a highly unreliable, I believe. You know, WHI lines clearly t- indicates that it's to test anyone with symptoms. So why did the U.S. then tag on another guideline that, and if you travel outside of the U.S.? Because right now, it's now 
the virus is being transmitted as a community. So it's a community transmission. You know, if you, like you said that, you know, someone who is symptomatic or maybe someone who is infected, but isn't symptomatic. And so they're carrying the germs with them. And then they go to a supermarket and they touch the doorknob and then someone else touches that doorknob. So that second person, you know, may not have gone abroad as as now infected with the COVID-19. Does it make sense to have this extra guideline as a policy? Uh, I I think that they change it lately, but uh, until I believe uh, two weeks ago, was still on. I mean, I have a friend of mine who's a pneumologist in, uh, in Florida, and uh, and they were still on. I mean, I give an example. He's a, 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 a great doctor. Uh, one of his patients had coronavirus. He's been exposed. He has to be tested. He couldn't be tested. But again, I mean, uh, we're not um, blaming anybody for the lack of testing because uh, you know it is what it is. The CDC didn't really wasn't prepared, and next time it will be. Uh, but the reality is that. Um, at the beginning, I believe that they were rationing the testing because they were not prepared. And now that there is more access to testing, they removed that particular uh, additional um, check. With the removal of that second guideline, is now everyone who's symptomatic can get tested. But there are some people who may be carrying it or are now carriers and may not mm-hmm. exhibit symptoms. So they could still be infecting someone. So do you think that we should change the guideline at some point when there's a sufficient numbers of tests that we should test everyone so we have a baseline of data of the population? Well, absolutely. But first, I mean, you're correct. Every 10 people with coronavirus, eight are asymptomatic, which means they, in this country, have been not tested, right? So uh, the assumption that we need to make now is that everybody is being infected. That's why we need to do social distancing. That's why we need to stay home. That's why we need to be careful. But you're absolutely correct. What we need to do, that's uh, basically mandatory. Uh, we need to a, uh, um, use a antibody uh, testing, which allow us to check who has already been infected maybe two months ago, three months ago, uh, you, know, two, uh, you know, a month ago and understand exactly already development immunity so that those people, they can go back to the community, work and do their life in a normal way. And uh, also identify those people that they didn't develop immunity because they didn't have, you know, they're not being infected yet. So we can work with them to make sure that we can do some social distancing and take the right measure to protect them until we uh, either get, uh, you know, very good data on, uh, on treatment, which I believe that will come very quickly because uh, there are over 300 protocol already, clinical trials already ongoing, testing a different type of uh, treatment. Uh, and I do believe that uh, by September, October, we will have already a treatment for, for coronavirus. And also, you know, while we are waiting for the vaccine, which more likely uh, will be ready by the beginning of next year. So that's very positive news that we have therapy and vaccines on its way. But what about the people now that are infected with COVID-19? Like how many ventilators are, are needed to care for the COVID patients here in the U.S.? Well, again, as, as, as we were discussing earlier on, because of the, uh, the you know, the structure of our, our country where we have multi states that are basically run independent, uh, the governor are in charge of, uh, you know, providing, you know, the, 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 
the resources that needed to 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 work for that, you know, to to, to solve this problem. Uh, the people making the decision, they really were not aware, or they they were not really expert in the field. So uh, one thing that that uh, it was easy to do was checking how many ventilators uh, they were using, country where they were very they were hit very hard by the virus. So what I did, uh, for example, I ran some models uh, uh, based on Italian data, and uh, you know what I was seeing, I was seeing that. Uh, only a fraction of the ventilator that the you know the various governors were requesting was really needed. As a matter of fact, nobody is running out of ventilator in this country, but there were no new ventilator needed. So, in other words, uh, you know, according to my estimates, you know, for uh, assuming a, a infection rate of uh, 250,000 people, you need only 18,000 ventilator. Uh, while, as you probably remember, you know, when the, you know, governor they were requesting 20. 30,000 ventilators for each state, which is clearly not something that makes any sense. For example, New York right now, I do believe they have 120,000 cases. So in this case, they only need you know 8,000 ventilators. They don't need more than that. Um, and I do not know how many New York states, how many ventilators there are already are. But given that the elective uh, procedures, uh, they were supposed to be not done, um, you know, um, the majority of these ventilators should be available for COVID patients. So, uh, and as a result, uh, you know, given that they, they were a complete overestimation from the various governors, the various, you know, um, local uh, public health uh, officials, you know, it happened that we didn't not run out of ventilators. So, um, again, I, I was really very disappointed to see how um, there was a blaming game between, you know, the, the local you know, agency and the federal agencies. Uh, but it was based on our own feeling, not on data, uh, which is what we are supposed to be doing in this situation. In this situation, our emotion and our political idea they need to stay on our side. And all we need, to, we need to do is get in the data, get in new data, get in data done properly, and let the data telling us what to do. Thank you for emphasizing that we need to have data and evidence to drive informed decision-making, especially policies and decisions that can impact the whole population. I think there was, a, or maybe there is still an est- overestimation of the numbers of ventilators that's needed, because you just said that, you know, even though that there's like hundreds of thousands of people infected with COVID-19, not every single one of those people need a ventilator. So there is some level of overestimation. And is that because to be precautious about in case we need that, or was that because decision was driven by emotion, that it wasn't based on data. Yeah, correct. For example, I mean, uh, just to give you a sense, in my calculation, out of 175,000 people infected, okay, mm-hmm. uh, only 13,000 people might need a ventilator. So, so it, it, in my uh, um, estimate, they were all done in uh, very conservatively. So, in other words, we want to make sure that we were protecting, you know, we we, 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 we were running, lab, you know, our number to be cautious that we were not running out of ventilator. So, you're correct. I mean, uh, uh, here we are in a situation where only uh, a, a little fraction of the people, around 15, 20% of the people that, uh, uh, that are positive will actually eventually have some. Uh, um, um, you know, symptoms. And then a smaller fraction of these people will need a ventilator. So uh, uh, I have no idea why uh, the local authorities, they, they were shooting for all these number of ventilators. Probably they got bad advice. They didn't really work with, a, uh, with the right uh, people. But 
the some data was already available. So one way to go was to go to the Italian uh, uh, um, warehouse uh, for 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 the coronavirus. The, the, there is something. There is an equivalent to the CDC called Protezione Civile. All the data are there. You go there, you see exactly what is the percentage of people on ventilator given the number of people positive. It test give you a wonderful estimate of what you need <laughs> because the Italian situation was among the worst in the, in the world. So we, you were using the worst case scenario to estimate the number of ventilators for possibly a situation which was in a worst case scenario. How many people that were on ventilators actually recovered and how many people were on ventilators and passed away? Because that might help us understand like the need of ventilators and were there anyone that died because they didn't have a ventilator? Okay, so I want to make a distinction. There was these rumors saying that in Italy, the people that were turned down for not getting ventilators. That's not true. What happened was the Italian secession anesthesiologists at one point, they were concerned, like in, the people were concerned, that they were running out of ventilator. But it really actually not necessarily happened. So they uh, developed a document, one-page document, uh, describing the guidelines of what to do in case you were running out of ventilators. Um, so it appears that they, they they didn't really use it, so doctors were not forced to use it. But that's you know they they were actually using that as a prevention measure to make sure that if you were in the case, there's some you know some guidance on it. Uh, so uh, that's where we are in terms of um, outcome uh, for those people that they uh, get admitted into ICU and therefore we need a ventilator. Unfortunately, fifty uh, percent of them. Um, um, Anywhere between uh, the number they, they depend on the country, uh, between 50% and 20% of them, um, they um, only will make it out and be okay. Um, and there is a mortality rate that is uh, between 50 and 80%. Do you think that it's because of the timing, like if they were on the ventilator early on, or is this is just based on genetics and in their own immune system, their reaction to the COVID-19? You don't want to be on a ventilator. I mean, there is now some evidence showing that the ventilator actually causing more issue to the lungs. Um, the ventilator is the last uh, uh, option that the doctors have to treat this particular condition. And it's not an optimal situation because the ventilator is also damaging the lung as well. So um, uh, we, we do know that uh, it's an overreaction of the inflammatory system in the body that uh, uh, makes uh, um, basically the heart, the kidney, uh, overworking. And at one point, uh, you know, because the lung, they're, you know, they're getting uh, fluid, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, 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 you know, and uh, at that point, at that point, you know, one of the organs is going to shut down. Um, I, I do not know if there is anything that is genetic or not. Uh, my guess is really more about the overall severity of the particular patient um, uh, at the time, the patient gets infected. And also, um, the amount of uh, uh, viral load that you're getting. In other words, if I'm, uh, if I'm a doctor, I'm 70, I'm 65 years old uh, with diabetes, hypertension, if I'm borderline cardiovascular disease, and I work in the ER, and I'm, I'm, I'm basically exposed to uh, huge loads of virus because I'm you know, treating patients every day, more likely an outcome will be worse than someone like me who was not an ER doctor 
be exposed all day to the virus loads, but just being exposed one time or maybe with a lower viral load. Um, I don't know if I, I, I explain what <laughs> my concept is being explained properly. That makes sense. It's the, your exposure to the virus. I mean, it, it could be a multifaceted reason. It could be your genetics, your own immune system, like, and your immune system, your, the way you develop your immunity is over a lifetime. So what you're exposed to when you're young versus adult. So it's a very complex um, system that keeps us healthy. And also right now, what you were just saying about viral load, um, just so happens I do have a friend who is an ER doctor and, you know, Ever since this coronavirus pandemic happened, and I was just, you know, um, getting back in touch to see how he's doing. And, you know, he told me that, you know, he's been seeing a lot more patients. You know, he went into work and there was already 25 patients waiting for him and they all wanted to get tested. But then that's when he told them, like, well, you know, the ER is for really for urgent care, for gunshot wounds. It's not really here for getting the coronavirus tests because now patients who may be infected are now infecting other patients who are very already have an underlying condition. So we've been texting for two two weeks and just checking in with him. And just this past week, he was telling me that in this hospital, they um, had changed the policy that doctors, your doctors can only wear one mask for one shift of 12 hours. And they have to recycle that mask in a bag. And he can only wear it when he's seeing a patient. And then when he's walking in the hallway, they were not allowed to wear the mask because that might scared the patient. So unfortunately, this past four days, um, he's been hospitalized because he's COVID-19 positive. And so I think what you just said, that exposure to viral load is, you know, has an impact, but also just the environment. I mean, he's not protected. He, there's a lack of personal protective equipment here in the U.S., which is a critical issue. I mean, we've been focusing on ventilators, but it turns out that um, maybe we overestimated the numbers of ventilators, but we, we need to focus on like how to care for our frontline doctors because we're sending them out there without any arm and shield. From talking with him, he seems to be getting better. He was diagnosed with pneumonia. And I just think it's just very sad to see that we have frontline workers out there and you know what's the cost benefit of like making an extra mask or giving a doctor all the masks they need and you have a doctor who's you know out and hopefully he does recover the reality of what's really happening here in the u.s doctor yeah Fillard. i'm happy yeah. sure um, so i wanted to comment that uh, I'm, I'm glad that you, your friend is doing better here uh, again multiple issues again why people need to go to the er to get tested uh, I mean, uh, ER, people need to be triaged outside the hospital. They shouldn't be going to the hospital, in, for example, in South Korea, uh, you know, even in Italy. They, they, they build tents outside the hospital where you go to get checked. In South Korea, they, you know, drive through. They also, yeah, in New York, they do have them drive through. Uh, you know, the ER, like you said, it should be used in a different way. But again, in this country, we use ER as a, it's the first, uh, 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 you know, uh, contact to 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 public, you know, to 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 the healthcare, which is shouldn't be like that. Also, when it comes to the lack of uh, um, PPEs, which are the you know the mask, uh, you know the gowns, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, what is the responsibility for the various you know um, hospitals? Most of them they are non-profit, they're independent. They do not belong to the state. They don't belong to the to the government. They are there to, to serve the community. Why they were not prepared? Why they didn't really uh, have uh, a, a, a contingency plan? Why uh, you need to uh, rely on a 
on a, on FEMA on a, on a, on the government to pray. That was should be the last point of uh, uh, contact. Uh, it looked like, and I've been working on our system for 15 years. That's the, you know, we, there are a lot of resources available, uh, you know, and uh, and uh, there was nobody had any contingency plan. This one is a, a redo uh, uh, of what happened with the Ebola cases that actually happened here in Dallas. I don't know if you guys remember, um, uh, you know, um, nine years ago, I believe, or something like that. So. Again, the responsibility, uh, uh, I want to make sure that people understand that uh, first, don't go to the hospital to get checked. Um, call your doctor or um, um, do not go to the ER. Uh, and then it's also true that the, the hospitals they need to be organized in a way where you have a areas for people that are potentially uh, infected uh, that they have no symptoms, they have little symptoms, they are not hospitalized, where they can go when they need to get triage. Otherwise, you're going to infect the rest of, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the community in the hospitals. So that's what we are learning in Italy, that we're doing a lot of work on that as well. So, um, again, uh, it's a mix between uh, um, poor public health, because uh, that's, that's the, your podcast, a, a poor, you know, management of uh, healthcare systems uh, or healthcare uh, facilities across the country. Uh, and also, poor uh, communication to the public on what they should be doing. I mean, in this country, what I would expect would have expected would be you know, one phone number and one website where if I feel that I do have coronavirus, I go there, I get all the information that I need to have to assess whether or not I need to get tested and where I need to go to get tested. So you don't go to the ER. Yeah, and I agree to that point that we should use the ER for what its purposes are for is for urgent care. And I think here in the U.S., a lot of people go to the ER for primary care and as their first point of contact of care. And I think as a society, I think we all have to revisit what makes public health and how each individual person contributes to public health. Because public health is all of us. It's every one of us together is what makes public health. Yeah. So what do you think will happen after we reach the peak, Dr. Filardo? Well, I, I'm very optimistic. Uh, Beside all the idiosyncrasies of the system, <laughs> uh, I'm very optimistic because uh, um, uh, the old world has been, unfortunately, uh, impacted by coronavirus. So there are a lot of people working on uh, solutions. Uh, I'm expecting to have a um, treatment uh, that is going to be effective and efficacious, uh, no later than uh, uh, this fall, when we probably in the, the northern hemisphere we will have the next wave. And I'm expecting to have a vaccine ready uh, by early next year. Um, I'm expecting to have right now, hopefully before the summer, a um, very widespread uh, antibody testing to assess who already have developed immunity. And uh, if we do have all these uh, uh, processes in place, uh, I'm sure that it will be uh, basically a, a very, very low number of people that unfortunately will pass away. Oh, that's good to hear. And and on that note, like how long do you think we need to be staying at home? And just given the new data that there, it seems like it's slowing down. Do you think that we could go back to normal by summer? Or do you think that we need to really be very precautious and stay at home and just maybe reduce our social activities 
to the end of summer? Well, the, uh, that, that's the problem. Until we do the uh, surveillance testing, which is the antibody testing, um, my recommendation would be to uh, do social distancing. Uh, maybe not necessarily stay at home, but you know, um, uh, if you if you are uh, you know uh, blessed enough to uh, be able to work from home, work from home. Um, if you need to go uh, to work, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, in a particular location, make sure that you know you wash your hands, um, um, you uh, you know clean up uh, disinfect surfaces that they you know that other people touch before you. In other words, put put in a, 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 a in, in place all the the, the measures that uh, that we know that are going to be preventing the spread of the disease. Uh, but again, I think that uh, um, if uh, um, I would have been able to, um, uh, if I would, if I could provide a suggestion to our um, um, uh, leaders in the country, so to to the president and then the task force, it would be a please make sure that we have antibody testing done immediately, so that we can really assess who uh, has not um, the. Uh, um, they, you know, uh, infected and who already have been infected before have immunity and let the people that had immunity to run the country for us until the treatment has been um, uh, identified a vaccine as well. Well, that to me sounds very hopeful and optimistic that, that if we were to have some type of database or some type of assessment based on our health status and if this antibody testing is available, that it would give us some assurance that where we are and that we have some level of immunity, you know, I think we can still go back to normal. Like, and is that possible, you think, that we could develop herd immunity against this virus? Yes. And as you know, the, uh, the model we're using, they're the based on, on the, um, of a factor, uh, which is the infection, uh, 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 how many people each infected person will infect. Right now, that number is between 2.5 and 3.5, which means that each uh, infected person will infect uh, 2.5 or 3.5 people. So you can do the math. It's very exponential. It goes up very quickly. So if we are to have a uh, 70% of the population of the U.S., let's say, that already has been um, uh, developed immunity because they've already been infected, um, the virus uh, basically can spread only on, on that 30, left over 30%, right? Uh, so that number of possibility of being infected will go down from, uh, um, you know, 2.5 to between 2.5 to 3.5, probably below one, and awfully close to zero. When the number goes close to zero, it means that uh, little by little, the virus will not be able to spread anymore. Um, but I do not know if we already had 70% of the population infected in this country. I ran some models this morning, and I, I will probably post a tweet this afternoon, um, um, making some assumption. And that it could be that New York has already had, New York State already had almost 70% of the population already been infected. Um, but again, the model that are based on assumption, et cetera, et cetera. So... Uh, uh, we need still uh, we need to wait before we can really say something um, um, with certainty. As we come to the end of our interview, Dr. Ferlardo, like what message would you like to leave of our listeners? I first, uh, it's uh, we need to make sure that uh, every single person that unfortunately die, uh, 
will be taken into account and we will be making uh, plans for the, for the next pandemic or the next epidemic. Uh, the sacrifice that these people uh, uh, unfortunately did, is the ultimate sacrifice, and we need to be very, very mindful of their uh, sacrifice. And therefore, I really hope that uh, uh, you know, public health officials uh, and uh, leaders across the world will finally you know, put together in place a contingency plan that will allow us to, to be prepared when the next pandemic will come. Thank you for leaving this hopeful message for our listeners. What is the best way for listeners to reach out to you? Um, the best way would be to uh, via uh, Twitter. Uh, my account is G-I-O, F is Frank, I-L-A, Josila, or just Google my name, Giovanni Filardo, Twitter. I usually uh, post a tweet uh, maybe uh, four or five days because I believe that uh, we need to be mindful of people's time. And so I want to post information only when it, I believe it's valuable. And so I don't over-tweet. <laughs> um, but that's the best way to reach me. If you want to learn more about Dr. Ferlato's work, definitely follow him on Twitter. And most recently, the Washington Post interviewed him. And you can see the interview, which is an hour long of great information on the Washington Post live YouTube channel. So definitely check that out. So Dr. Ferlato, again, thank you so very much for spending your time here and sharing your knowledge about the COVID-19, you know, and demystifying a lot of information that's provided in the media. And also having us think about what individual part that we contribute to the COVID-19 and what we can do and question like policies and why things were done that way. Why did CDC react the way they did? Why did we overestimate the numbers of deaths or why did we overestimate the numbers of ventilators that's needed? I think these questions that you pose to us are so important because I think, you know, right now in the news, you know, we're Um, receiving so much information and we're accepting the information passively and question whether information that was provided to you is based on data or is that based on a hunch or intuition or a gut feeling and that you should start questioning why things are done the way they are. So I really appreciate your time with us, Dr. Filardo. Yes, I want to thank you for having me. And uh, like you said, um, without data, you just have opinions. Thank you. Oh, I like that. Thank you so much. If you got questions about any of the episodes, feel free to reach out to me directly. And while you're there at it, please subscribe to the podcast and share the episode that you felt connected with so we could be a part of this collective invisible force called public health. Thanks.